We started looking at 2 Corinthians back on February 5th. And back then, on our first week looking at this letter, I asked the question, what does it look like to be a successful Christian? Or what does it look like to be a successful church? There have always been voices telling us a successful Christian life is a life that's free from trouble or sickness or hardship. But in this letter, Paul has been giving us a different answer to that question. And in the passage we come to this morning, it's really the climax of Paul's answer. And actually, it's the climax to the whole letter. We're going to pick up this morning at chapter 11, verse 16. In the Church Bible, that's page 1165. Before I read this, let me remind you of the background to what we're looking at. In Paul's absence, the Corinthian believers have been dazzled by some new teachers who've arrived. Apparently, these men are very impressive speakers. In fact, they appear to be impressive in lots of other ways, too. Paul calls them super apostles, but he says that with his tongue firmly in his cheek. In reality, Paul doesn't think there's anything super about these guys at all. He goes on to call them false apostles. We saw that last week. They're false apostles because they're leading the Corinthians away from sincere and pure devotion to Christ. These new teachers may talk about Jesus and the Spirit and the Gospel, but it's not the same Jesus or Spirit or Gospel the Corinthians learned from Paul. So in the closing chapters of this letter, Paul enters into a fight for the hearts and minds of the Corinthian believers. He wants to win them back to the true good news about Jesus. And in order to get a hearing in Corinth, Paul knows that he has to show some of his credentials. He has to prove that he's not in the least inferior to these super apostles. And so Paul enters into a bit of boasting. It's the key word in these chapters. But as we'll see, this is boasting with a twist. Because our passage this morning is about boasting in weakness. Let me read it for you. Chapter 11, verse 16, through to chapter 12, verse 10. I repeat, let no one take me for a fool. But if you do, then receive me just as you would a fool, so that I may do a little boasting. In this self-confident boasting, I am not boasting as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many are boasting in the way the world does, I too will boast. You gladly put up with fools since you are so wise. In fact, you even put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you or pushes himself forward or slaps you in the face. To my shame, I admit that we were too weak for that. What anyone else dares to boast about, I am speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. 
I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from the Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor under King Aratas had the city of the Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me. But I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. I must go on boasting, although there's nothing to be gained. I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself, except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool, because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain, so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is God's Word. And our passage divides into two clear sections. In both of these sections, Paul starts with what his opponents are focusing on. And then he moves the focus to where it ought to be. First of all, from personal credentials to personal humiliation. And second, from powerful experiences to the power of God's grace. So first, from personal credentials to personal humiliation. Look again at chapter 11, verse 16. I repeat... Let no one take me for a fool, but if you do, then receive me just as you would a fool, so that I may do a little boasting. 
Basically, Paul's point is, I believe the false apostles are fools, and I don't want to be lumped in with them. But to gain a hearing from you, I'm adopting their foolish approach for a while. I'm going to do what they do. I'm going to set up my credentials. Just to prove I'm not inferior to these teachers that you're so dazzled by. And even as Paul does this, he wants to be clear in verse 17. In this self-confident boasting, I am not talking as the Lord would, but as a fool. We might ask, well, if the Lord, and by the Lord Paul means Jesus, if the Lord wouldn't talk this way, why is Paul going to do it? Well, there's a verse in Proverbs that helps us understand what Paul is doing. Proverbs chapter 26, verse 5 says, answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes. In other words, sometimes to show a fool that he's being a fool, you have to give him some foolishness back. That's what Paul is doing here. He's saying, you Corinthians are all taken up with boasting and boasters, are you? Okay, then I'm going to enter into your foolishness with you for a while. Verse 18, since many are boasting in the way the world does, I too will boast. But even as he boasts, Paul wants to show the Corinthians that actually they are not being wise at all. He wants to help them see their foolishness. So he goes on to say, these super apostles that you're so impressed with, they're abusing you and exploiting you. Verse 19, you gladly put up with fools since you are so wise. In fact, you even put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you or pushes himself forward or slaps you in the face. To my shame, I admit that we were too weak for that. Paul says if that kind of abuse of leadership is wise, if that's what real strength is about, then I'll hold my hands up and say, I'm weak because I've never treated you that way. And then Paul gets down to the job of boasting. And he starts out where his opponents start. He starts with the kind of boasting that's been so successful in winning over the Corinthians. Boasting in personal pedigree and credentials. Today, the equivalent of what Paul does might be boasting about the successful family you come from, maybe the school or university you went to, the degrees you have, or maybe the heights that you've risen to in the business world, maybe the income you have. Whatever is likely to wow people, whatever is likely to put them a little bit in awe of you, So in a different context, it might not be boasting about education and money that wows people. It might be boasting about your shady past, the damage you've done, the dirt you've wallowed in, the drugs and violence you've done. In some contexts, those are the kinds of personal credentials that will gain you respect and put people in awe of you. Here in the Corinthian situation, the wow factor was Jewishness. It's clear that these super apostles in Corinth were playing up their Jewish heritage. 
Remember, most of the Corinthians would probably have been Gentiles. That's non-Jews. But as new converts to Christ, they would be aware that Christ came as the fulfillment of Old Testament promises. They would have learned that the history of the Jewish people was the history that culminated in the arrival of Christ. It's not hard to see how these newcomers could have impressed the Corinthians by hyping up their Jewish credentials. We're better qualified than anyone to teach you about Jesus. He was an Israelite, a Hebrew just like us. He grew up with the Old Testament just like us. So let us tell you what it really means to know and follow Jesus. But the reality is, of course, Paul had the same credentials. In the middle of verse 21, what anyone else dares to boast about, I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Flashing the Jewish card doesn't give these super apostles any advantage over Paul. Then Paul mentions another claim that the super apostles are making. Verse 23, are they servants of Christ? Now we already know how Paul would answer this question. He already has answered it. Back in verse 13, he said these men are masquerading as apostles of Christ. But in fact, verse 15, they're servants of Satan. So we know what Paul thinks of these guys, but since they're claiming to be servants of Christ, Paul says, okay, I'll play along. I'll mention my credentials as a servant of Christ. And in order to understand what Paul does next, we have to understand what the Corinthians would be expecting him to do. In Paul's day, whenever people set out their credentials, they would give a list of successes. How many times they had achieved this or that. Their exploits and their victories. That's what impressed people. No one boasted about their losses and their defeats and their humiliation. But that's exactly what Paul does. Yes, he has decided he's going to play his opponent's game. He's going to boast. But from verse 23 onwards, Paul turns the whole game on its head. He boasts in all the things his opponents would have been ashamed of. All the things that they would have tried to keep quiet if they'd been through them. And that includes the first item in verse 23. I have worked harder. Teachers and wise men who were any good took pride in not having to work hard. Being able to live off your speaking ability was something to boast about. They didn't have to get their hands dirty with everyday work. But Paul had a trade. He made tents. Paul didn't make money out of his preaching and teaching. He goes on to mention prison. Then in verse 24, he says, Five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Old Testament law set forty lashes as the maximum punishment. The Jews had imposed their own limit at thirty-nine. 
Maybe that was to avoid going over 40 if they miscounted the lashes. This was done with a leather whip. One third of the lashes were given to the person's chest. Then they were rolled over and got the remaining two thirds on their back. It's pretty remarkable that Paul survived five doses of this. It was entirely possible to die from one lot of 39 lashes. So we're not talking here about a few slaps on the wrist. And apart from the physical trauma of this, Paul is admitting that he was by and large rejected by his own people, the Jews. And all of this came to him because he preached Jesus as the Messiah. Then in verse 25, he says, Three times I was beaten with rods. We've heard from him about the standard Jewish punishment, and now he mentions a Roman punishment. And in this case, there was no limit to the number of blows. And they could be given to any part of the body. Paul was a Roman citizen. By rights, he should never have been beaten this way. But he was, three times. The list goes on. Once I was stoned. And just to be clear, this is not Paul confessing to drug use. He's talking here about being bombarded with stones. The incident is recorded in Acts chapter 14. We're told that it was so severe that those who did the stoning thought they'd killed him. They dragged him outside the city and left him for dead. The list goes on. Multiple shipwrecks, bandits. In the ancient world, traveling by sea was dangerous, and traveling by road wasn't much better. Paul's travels exposed him to all of the dangers time after time. In verse 26, he says that apart from the general rejections by the Jews and Gentiles, false brothers were a danger to him. He's talking about counterfeit Christians, like the false apostles in Corinth. Then add to all that desperate physical deprivation and exhaustion. Verse 27. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Finally, on top of physical exhaustion, add a massive, constant spiritual burden. Verse 28. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? Think of the headache Paul had just dealing with the Corinthian church. Then add all the other churches that he oversaw. Think of the emotional and spiritual energy He must have poured out into all that. And this wasn't just a general concern for Corinth or Galatia. Paul cared about individuals too. He says, who is weak? Physically weak or psychologically weak or spiritually weak? And I do not feel weak with them. Who is led into sin and I don't inwardly burn? 
or feel distress for them. The point is, Paul entered into the sufferings and struggles of the Christians under his care, and it wore him out. He sums it all up in verse 30. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. I'll play your game, Paul says, but I'll use my own categories. I'll boast about my own weakness and humiliation. Those are the personal credentials that I have. They're not very impressive, are they? They don't paint a glossy picture of my strength and greatness, do they? They don't show you a man who goes around triumphing gloriously over all adversity, do they? No, they show you a life of humiliation and struggle and unrelenting pressure. Why is Paul taking this approach? Why is he boasting in humiliation instead of pulling out his impressive credentials? Because he could have done that. He gave a hint of it in verse 22 with his Jewish heritage. He could have gone on to talk about his top-class education as well. But he lists all the stuff that makes him look unimpressive in his culture. Why? Because, verse 31, it's the Lord Jesus who is to be praised, not Paul. If Paul is forced into talking about himself, then he's going to highlight his own humiliation. He wants to see Jesus praised, not Paul. Even as Paul takes on the super apostles at their own game, he is turning the game on its head. He's turning it into a game that John the Baptist liked to play. John the Baptist had a big reputation. He was a popular preacher in the days before Jesus started his ministry. But when Jesus did start his ministry, John said, He must become greater, I must become less. That's what Paul is doing. He has reluctantly entered into this boasting game. He's shown that he does have the credentials to match the super apostles and their Jewishness. But as a servant of Christ, Paul wants to highlight his own weakness. So if there's any praise to be dished out, it needs to go to Jesus. And Paul closes this first section with a crowning example of personal humiliation. Shortly after he became a Christian, Paul, the former hero of the Jews, became hated by the Jews. The Jews in Damascus tried to kill him. His new Christian friends had to help him escape. And there was nothing glorious about his escape. It wasn't a James Bond-style getaway. It was a moment of humiliation for Paul. He was lowered down the city wall in a basket. And actually, it was a basket normally used for transporting fish. Paul's audience would not have been impressed by that picture. And Paul knows it. That's why he mentions it. You and I, of course, live in a different time from Paul. For him, this kind of boasting could only lead to humiliation. 
But today, we love to hear a good missionary adventure story. If someone has been in prison for their faith, they're like a celebrity in the church. Even as we read this section, maybe your admiration for Paul grew. Today, it's possible to elevate yourself by telling about your trials and your hardships. Those things today can be turned into personal credentials. So we need to make sure that we get Paul's point here. His point is that whatever time and culture we live in, when we talk about ourselves, our aim must be to see Christ praised, not ourselves. Whether we're sharing our testimony about how God saved us, or if it's a story of some trial that he's brought us through, our guiding principle has to be, he must become greater, I must become less. We must move from personal credentials to personal humiliation. And our aim must be to see Christ praised, not ourselves. As he continues to fight for the Corinthians, Paul moves to a second area of boasting. This time it's boasting in powerful experiences. Chapter 12, verse 1. I must go on boasting. Although there's nothing to be gained, I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. It seems that Paul's opponents were big on spiritual experiences, visions and revelations. Apparently, these people were quick to publicize their private spiritual experiences. And they have succeeded in impressing the Corinthians with all of this. So Paul wants to make it clear he could hold his own in any boasting session about spiritual experiences. And yet he continues to be embarrassed by all this. In verse 1, he knows there's nothing to be gained by it. And his embarrassment causes him to tell about his own experience as if he's talking about someone else. Verse 2, I know a man in Christ. In other words, I know a Christian man. How do we know Paul's talking about himself here? Because later on in this section, he tells us what happened to him as a consequence of this experience. The second half of this section only makes sense if the first part is about Paul too. But here he says that 14 years previously, this man in Christ had been caught up to the third heaven. The Jews believed there were three levels of heaven. There was the atmosphere... Then beyond that, there was space. And finally, beyond space was the place where God lives. That was the third heaven. Paul is telling us he had a powerful, unusual experience of God. He's uncertain whether he went there in body or whether it was just a vision. But either way, he saw into the throne room of God. In verse 4, he calls it paradise. As far as spiritual experiences go, this one is first class. It's top drawer. 
It's in the Champions League category. If this happened to someone today, they'd write a book about it, which would then be turned into a film and then a video game. But Paul is very reserved about it. He gives us very little detail. Maybe some of us are dying to know more. Come on, Paul. What was it like? But Paul doesn't go into it. Why? Because he wants to move the focus from powerful experiences to the power of God's grace. Paul mentions just enough to prove that when it comes to spiritual highs, he could outboast the super apostles any day. But then he says, Yes, I could astound you with all my private spiritual experiences. Verse 6 Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain, so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. Paul wants to skirt away from talking about his spiritual highs. Because Paul wants to be judged on the life that people can see. It can be very tempting to try and bolster our reputation by talking about what the Lord told me in my quiet time this morning. Or what the Lord has shown me about the future direction of the church. But if we follow Paul, we'll be determined to show our closeness to Christ not by bragging about what he told us this morning, but by living a life of obedience to him, by speaking and acting in ways that are Christ-like. I may or may not be telling the truth about what I heard in my quiet time this morning. You weren't there. But no one can dispute the reality of a Christ-honoring life. And that's what Paul wants to be judged on. Not his private experiences, but his public witness. Let's take a moment to be clear on this. Paul is not denying the reality of unusual spiritual experiences. He had them himself. He had plenty of them. More than most Christians. The book of Acts records six different visions or revelations that Paul had. Paul had plenty of them, but he will not put his emphasis on them. He won't give them any great importance. They're not the main thing. Any benefit that comes from them is private and personal. And Paul knows the danger of focusing on private experiences. Liars and fakes and deceivers can make big claims about their private experiences. And they can lead people astray on the strength of those claims. Yes, I know it might be possible just to fake a consistently Christ-like life. It might. But it's a whole lot harder to fake because our lives are there for everyone to see. Our private spiritual experiences are not there for everyone to see. And surely Paul's pattern is the pattern that you and I are to follow. 
If you have a wonderful private spiritual experience, that's great. Thank God for it. Take benefit from it. Let that experience draw you closer to him. But don't use it to try and impress others or to gain authority over others by saying, well, God told me this. And even as you thank God for your experience, remember what God has called you to. He has called you to pursue holiness, to love your Christian brothers and sisters, and to spread the good news about Jesus. If you and I have unusual spiritual experiences along the way, then great. But they don't give us a reason to look down on anybody else. And they're not to become our focus. We're not to chase after them. We're to give our energy to following in the steps of Christ, the one who obeyed his Father in everything. And just on a side note, if we take this point seriously, it will begin to affect the kind of books that we gravitate towards. There's a certain kind of book that's very popular in Christian bookshops. It's the kind of book that's full of stories about private Christian experiences, dreams and prophetic visions and revelations. Those kind of books sell in far greater numbers than Bible study books. And I don't want to deny that some of the stories in those books might really have happened. But I want to say respectfully and following Paul's lead that we need to wean ourselves off those kind of books because they put our focus exactly where Paul says it shouldn't be, on the spectacular and on the unusual. We can become people who feel like inadequate Christians because we haven't had a trip to heaven. Or we can end up chasing after unusual experiences and getting duped and deceived. So spend your money on a Bible study book instead. Or spend it on a book about living an ordinary, faithful life in obedience to Christ. Because the ordinary life is the life 99% of us are called to. Most of us are called to serve God without mind-blowing visions and revelations. Paul has only mentioned his own unusual experience to get a hearing from the Corinthians because he knows that they're taken up with those things. But what Paul wants to focus on is the human weakness that came into his life along with the unusual experience. Paul wants to focus on that human weakness because it resulted in an even more important experience for Paul, the experience of God's gracious, sustaining power in his life. Follow along as I read these final verses again, verses 7 to 10. To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. 
But he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. It's clear now that when Paul spoke earlier about the man in Christ, he was actually speaking about himself. In verse 7, he says, The thorn came to him because of these surpassingly great revelations. So this is not something that Paul was born with. It was not something that he had before he became a Christian. But what was the thorn? Well, obviously, he's not talking about an actual thorn. That probably goes without saying. He could have pulled an actual thorn out. But whatever it was, was like a thorn in that it was a constant, substantial irritation in Paul's life. Maybe you can remember having a decent splinter in your finger. It's very hard to forget it's there. And the fact is, we don't know any specifics about the thorn. It could have been some sort of spiritual or psychological pain. It could have been opposition that Paul faced. It could have been a physical complaint or illness of some kind. But whatever it was, it was permanent, even though it may have been worse at certain times. Presumably, the Corinthians knew what it was. But much more important than what it was is the source of the thorn. At the end of verse 7, Paul says, it was a messenger of Satan to torment me or to batter me, to knock me around. But that's not the whole story. Because at the beginning of verse 7, Paul says he received the thorn to keep me from becoming conceited. Well, that certainly was not what Satan intended by the thorn. Satan works to encourage conceit, not to stop it. What Paul is telling us in verse 7 is that the thorn was both a gift from God and a tool of Satan. It was a gift from God because it kept Paul's pride in check. And it was a tool of Satan because it inflicted suffering on Paul. It knocked him around. And it probably hampered his ministry too. Satan intended it for bad. God intended it for good. It's very important for us to see this because sometimes we think of our lives in terms of either or. Either this situation in my life is a blessing from God or it's an attack from Satan. But the Bible doesn't present things that way. For example, is cancer a gift from God or a tool of Satan. Often, the correct answer might be both. Sickness and suffering are not how things are supposed to be. We experience them because we live in a broken world, a world that's in rebellion against God. One day, 
God will fully renew and redeem his creation. Cancer will be gone and all other suffering. Cancer in itself is not a good thing. It's an evil. And yet, it can be used by God to bring about good. It can be used by God to conform us to the likeness of Christ or to display God's power in some other way in our lives. That's what Paul found. Clearly, he considered the thorn to be unbearable. Look what he says in verse 8. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. These were not three half-hearted prayers. We're to think of three intense seasons of prayer. Paul says he pleaded. And God answered him not by taking away the thorn, but by displaying his power as he gave Paul the grace to bear up under the thorn. Of course, it's easy for you and me to read this this morning and think, ah, yes, it was best for the thorn to stay in Paul's life. But no doubt at the time, Paul found it a little harder to accept. He tells us he pleaded three times. He wanted rid of this. But Paul did come to agree that it was best for the thorn to stay. In fact, he came to boast, not just in his thorn, but in all of his many weaknesses. Why? Well, it was not because he loved to suffer. Charles Hodge explains it like this. Paul boasted in his weakness because in his weakness he became the dwelling place of the power of Christ. That's the significance of the phrase in verse 9, so that Christ's power may rest on me. The word translated rest is connected to the word for tent or tabernacle. In the Old Testament, the tabernacle tent was God's dwelling place. And here Paul says, in my weakness, as my weakness puts to death my conceit and my pride and my self-sufficiency, I become more and more the dwelling place of the power of Christ. Christ's power rests on me. So the weaker Paul became, and the more he admitted his weakness and looked to God, the stronger Paul became. He became more effective for Christ. We started out this morning by asking, what does it look like to be a successful Christian or a successful church? As we try to answer that, we're always in danger of thinking the way the Corinthians were thinking. Thinking that God works best through powerful people and big personalities and mind-blowing experiences. If that was true, then sickness and disability and old age would make us useless for God's kingdom. Someone confined to bed would be of no use to God. Lack of political influence would make the church useless. But that way of thinking is a lie. 
The crucial factor isn't us at all. The crucial factor is God's power. And the message of our passage is that God's power is most powerfully at work when we are weak and when we're driven to depend on God. The reality is the opposite of how things look. Human weakness sets the stage for God's power to be seen. Human strength sets the stage for human strength to be seen. Certainly, I understand that it's possible to be weak and bitter. It's possible to go through hardship and end up shaking our fist at God. But when we respond to weakness and hardship by seeking God and trusting Him and desiring praise for Him, then our frail, unimpressive lives increasingly become the dwelling place for the power of Christ. All of us here have bodies that are getting older. Some of us have minds that are getting weaker. Some of us face difficulties that tower high over us. Our lives are broken in so many different ways. So we're perfect candidates to be dwelling places of the power of Christ. We are perfect candidates to display the power of God's grace. Let's ask him to show his power in our weakness. And let's close by boasting in our weakness as we sing two songs. First of all, treasure, and then let your kingdom come.